Well, we're back. And it smells good in here. With our low-fat chicken that we had tonight. You health nuts need to splurge every now and then. Have some fried chicken. Well, let me start by correcting last week, if you didn't hear. It was on the back side of the worksheet, question number four, letter C. There were four sub-points on your worksheet, if you were here, and you did not scream out, as you should have, to catch my attention. You rumbled, perhaps, but I just thought it's because that point was really good. Um, so there should have been no sub-points listed on your worksheet. We talked about John 14, and we talked about the Trinity. Some of you put John 14 under number one, and you put Father, Son, and Holy Spirit under number two, three, and four. That was very creative. That's not what I intended. So that was just a mistake, which happened in this line of work. Proverbs say, it, where there's an abundance of words, transgression is unavoidable. So you don't want a job where you talk for a living unless you have to. Let not many of you become teachers. I, I'm, I'm in my own psychosis right now. Um, don't want to talk about that. Actually, I'd like to pray, and then I'd like to dive into week number two, which I think will be uh, helpful for us on a number of levels. Let's pray together. God, we thank you very much for your provision of food every day, and even as we uh, jokingly, I jokingly talked about what a great thing it is to enjoy just the richness of food and fellowship and being able to receive with thanksgiving what you say sanctifies what we eat, uh, sets it apart, and uh, allows us to receive it as a gift and even glorify you in our meals, whether we're eating or drinking. And that's great, God. So we're thankful just for the chance to do that together as a church family on Thursday nights. We're thankful for this topic that uh, is, um, is full of, of insights that, that are yet to be mined. We have a lot of uh, rich material to get through this semester, so I pray it would be an awesome study for us, an enriching one for us, one that will clarify and just bring into sharp focus what you'd have us know about uh, your Holy Spirit. So thank you, God, for this time together. Enlighten our minds now, we pray, by the work of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, God's a good communicator, obviously, and in his word, he takes uh, a lot of time to go beyond just pedantic lectures and giving us indicative statements about reality. He is good with illustrations and analogies and similes and emblems and descriptive titles on almost every topic that he wants to communicate. And I thought it would be good this week, as I started last week, to do something that might help us throughout the rest of the semester. And that is to uh, clarify a few expectations and dispel a few myths by listing 12 emblems and descriptions of the Holy Spirit. Just like that opening illustration last week where we talked about the roles, the Trinitarian roles. If we understand that, we'll go into this semester with the right expectations and hopefully build on the framework of understanding the role, at least in, within the Trinity of the Holy Spirit, and that will manage our expectations. And so it's true of this. I mean, this seems to be something like we did in Christology, you could put much later in the semester, but I thought it would be good for us to start at the beginning of the semester to kind of look at this mosaic of descriptive titles and a few of these very rich uh, analogies, these emblems of the Spirit that will help uh, clarify 
a few things and help take some ideas that we, I think, draw from these emblems wrongly and put them aside. If we can dispel those myths, we won't be expecting uh, certain things that uh, just aren't true. And oftentimes there's a misunderstanding. You think, well, if God's such a good communicator, why does he do that? I often think of Proverbs 25.2, which says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search them out, to draw them out, which, by the way, is a great verse for expository preaching and for inductive Bible study. He wants us to mine it, to seek it out. And so sometimes uh, we look at things on the surface, get the wrong idea. We need to look beneath the surface and figure it out and clarify our thinking. So I picked 12. Now, this wasn't arbitrary. Uh, There's probably 38, 40 different emblems and titles of the Spirit in the Bible if you start at the beginning of Genesis and go to Revelation. But I picked ones that I think were either familiar to us, some that are often misunderstood, and some that I just think will help build a foundation for where we're going. Now, we're going to get into a lot of things that we'll touch on tonight in greater detail later in the semester. But suffice it to say right now, we're just giving that, that overview and clarifying a few things about the person of the Spirit, okay? So I've got 12 of them. We'll just move through them one by one, and I want to start with one that I think is etymologically tied to the word, both in Hebrew and in Greek. We said the word pneuma means what? We translate it spirit, but it also means wind. It also means, uh, it also means breath. So let's start with the idea of wind, which is an odd thought, really, when we think about wind and the mystery of wind. That's number one on your outline. And I want you to turn to John, John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. If you want to see where this connection is made in the most obvious place, it's Christ himself in his discussion with the seminary graduate, Nicodemus, and he's talking about some things, much like I said in Proverbs 25.2, that are often misunderstood because we forget the audience. We think he's talking to the woman at the well who doesn't have a rich theological background, but we're talking to Nicodemus. And to rightly understand a lot of things in the discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus, we've got to remember he's well-versed in not only the text of the Old Testament, but the theology and expectation of the Old Testament. That's why he's so harsh with him regarding that he should know these things. But look very early in the discussion, beginning in verse number 5. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's been, I think, uh, creatively preached in a lot of different ways and perhaps understood in a variety of ways. Uh, We'll look at that uh, afresh for the amount of time that we have. Can't go too far on this. But verse number six, it says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, we're shifting this from the word spirit to the idea, the illustration, the emblem of wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, clearly, the description is the person that is born of the spirit, but the connection is made between pneuma, the person of the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, which, by the way, uh, he's speaking of in the third person here. This is not modalism. He's clearly a distinct person, as we talked about last week. And the connection is is win. Now, there's something mysterious, obviously, about this. And there are uh, two aspects to this where he speaks of water and the Spirit. And the only way we can rightly understand this is to go back to Ezekiel 36 and 37. So if you would, go back to this Old Testament text, which in the mind of a Jewish uh, teacher, a Pharisee like Nicodemus, 
who's been trained. He's got his, uh, you know, his, his postgraduate degree. He is well-versed in all these things. Christ, obviously, and the buzz about Christ is that he is the Messiah, that he's bringing in and ushering in the kingdom age. So he's expecting, if Christ is going to show his credentials in some way in this little meeting at night, yeah, then we should see references and overtones to the new covenant which is discussed in, in a few places in the Old Testament, but we're going to look at this reference to Ezekiel 36. 36, drop down to verse 22, just in the heart of it here. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Ezekiel 36, 22, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. This is always helpful to recognize that God is acting for his own glory. But for the sake of my holy name, my redemption is really not just for your benefit. That's a byproduct. It's for his own holy name, the greatness of his holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Yet, he says, verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, okay, now they become agents and, and conduits of this, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Okay, now the profaning of his name is they've become sinful and, and, and they've become uh, reprobate, they've become idolaters. God's now going to show his greatness by working through them to reverse all that, to show the holiness of God. So they have to change. They can't be who they were. I will take you from among the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. So for all the interpretations of the idea of Jesus saying, born of water and spirit, uh, thinking that water must be, I don't know, the you know, first birth, the birth you know, has all this uh, you know, amniotic fluid. Not the idea. The idea is clearly bringing this seminary graduate back to the idea of the cleansing, the water, symbolic water of forgiveness that's all throughout the promises of the new covenant. He says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you, verse 25. You'll be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols because you profane the name of God, and I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to show my holiness through you. Something's going to happen through your lives. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit. He says, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Change that hardness toward me. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. I'm going to change that. And I will put my spirit. So even if there's confusion about the new spirit within you, and you say, well, that's the new spirit in the person, and, and, and I assume that it is, and the translators are right, they make an interpretive decision to put a small s on the word spirit in verse 26. Here, it's clearly capital S, the spirit of Yahweh, the Holy Spirit within you, and I will, now here's the phrase, translated variously, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Water, spirit, spirit, vindicating his holiness through them, this spirit will work through them to move them, draw them. Lots of different ways this is translated. Cause them, drive them to obey his rules. Maybe this ancient picture, this relief of a sailboat is a little bit more in line with the idea of what the spirit is going to do. We'll see this when we get to the, the chapter or the week on Revelation and the way God's Spirit moves along the prophets in the, in the doctrine of inspiration. 
the God-breathed nature of the Bible. But here we're talking about the Spirit needs to make you born again, needs to take out your heart of stone, needs to come in you, and like the wind on the sea pushing a sail in the right direction, we need to redirect the idolaters to be holy, righteous people. And the Spirit of God, like the wind, is going to move people. Now, the hard-hearted Pharisees, a lot of them, it's going to pass right by them. And the wind's going to whip into all kinds of people, like we see in chapter 4. The woman at the well becomes converted, and a bunch of Samaritans from the city of Sychar, bypassing all kinds of would-be disciples to be experiencing the new covenant. And the wind is going to mysteriously grab people and, and change them. And like the wind, invisibly, mysteriously drive them. Let's put a few things down just by way of implication here. When we talk about the Spirit being emblematic of something, we're talking about the empowerment or the enablement of someone to keep the law of God, to do the right things. We're frustrated in our flesh. We're frustrated that we can't do the things that God calls us to do without the enablement, the empowerment of the Spirit. We have to have the Spirit working through us to vindicate God's holy name. We know He's holy. We say we follow Him. We need to live like He lives. We need to reflect His holiness. The Spirit has to, like wind, drive us along, move us. Chapter um, 37, the next implication, 37. I didn't write that one down. Give me a Bible, somebody, please. Do you have an extra Bible? <laughs> Compass Bible Church? No, I don't want your Bible. There's got to be a black one. Yeah, under the chair? Some... Okay, here we go. Great. I should come prepared. I've got 37 translations in my computer, but I can't get to them right now. Ezekiel 37. Valley of dry bones. You see that there? Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, or on that later, set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Do you remember this illustration? He led me around, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered and said, Oh God, you know. Now this, remember what we just talked about. Israelites all scattered, hardness of heart, being punished by God. He's going to vindicate his holiness. The Spirit's going to blow, if you will, afresh and change who they are. The pneuma the rock of the Old Testament, moving them to obey. And now we're talking about all these people, dry bones. Can they live? He said, go prophesy over these bones. Preach to them. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause, here it comes, breath. Do you see a, a footnote there on that in your ESV? What's the footnote say? Spirit. I will cause breath, spirit to enter you. It's exactly what we said in the description of the new covenant in chapter 36. It will enter you and you shall live. And I will, I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come to you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Dead in transgressions and sins, alive in Christ. Let's put another implication. It's life-giving. The point is to God, you have no ability to do what God asks us to do without the life-giving spirit making you right with God this is a great passage, of course, that comes to mind in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in transgressions and sins, but made alive in Christ. The Spirit of God brings dead people alive. Of course, Jesus, back to the things Jesus said, back in verse 8 of John 3, it said, the wind blows where it wishes, 
You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit of God. There's something mysterious about this. There are people in Sychar in the next chapter being saved, while people like Nicodemus go away scratching his head and wondering what that was all about, not understanding it. How is it that some gal with some sordid past becomes indwelt and enlivened by the Spirit and now is moved to do what Christ asks her to do and living righteously in a new life and other people aren't? It's just mysterious. And to put it maybe more specifically, it goes where it wants. It's sovereign. And that's how John, by the way, started his book. Born of God, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. The idea is God chooses to enliven the dead as he chooses. I mean, you want some Calvinistic overtones in this passage. There it is, right? He chooses, he sovereignly goes, enlivens, moves, carries people along. Something powerful in that wind analogy. Holy Spirit, wind, connection, Jesus made it. What are we talking about? Well, at least enablement, life-giving, mysterious, sovereign, all those things are highlighted in that discussion. Let's go to the next one. Water. Water. Speaking of John 4, turn to John 4. In this discussion with the woman at the well. John 4, verses 10 through 14, the heart of this discussion. John chapter 4, the whole setup, providentially, speaking of the sovereignty of God, is that she's there, able to get him water and asks for a drink, and you know the story. And Jesus said, listen, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, that should be underlined, the gift of God, not gifts of God. I mean, there's something here he has in mind. And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you, here's a bracketed phrase, living water. And the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Verse 12. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. Now, if you were here, I think it... Uh, was it Easter this last year that I preached on this passage? We focused on the satisfaction of the woman at the well encountering Christ and the promise that comes from that being fulfilled. And that's an adequate application. But we didn't talk about the means. We didn't talk about the means. I mean, we mentioned it as I looked at my notes today. We mentioned it, but we didn't elaborate on it. Now, keep that in mind. As a matter of fact, let's read verse 14 again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him. And remember how he set this up, verse 10. It's the gift of God, the thing that's going to result, bottom of verse 14, in eternal life. Never to be thirsty again. That's the part we, ap we applied and highlighted at Easter. The water that I give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. Now, turn to chapter 7. This we didn't read last spring. The connection here is made three chapters later in this great festival where there is, by the way, the high priest pouring out water, an elaborate ceremony going on. And it says in verse 37, the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up, John 7, 37. 
If anyone thirsts, there it is again, reminiscent of what he said to the woman at the well, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Interesting, both of these, that sense of being passed through the person. Now, this, John makes clear, he said, underlined it, about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The death of Christ needed to take place, and after the resurrection, there was a very pointed connection of the authorization of Christ giving the Spirit, and the point is, as Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, the Spirit would no longer be with you, He would be in you, and when He's in you, that's the sign of the church age, that you have eternal life, and it is in this passage the very thing that He spoke of in terms of the emblem of water. Several things here. That was the connection in John 7. If we think about this analogy... Uh, we have to in our minds, don't turn there, we've got a lot, a lot of passages to turn to tonight, just jot it down. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, there's clearly something about that phrase living water that we can trace through the Bible that does not just look like a pass-through, that it's doing something through me, but doing something for me. And in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 12, you might remember this passage, verses 12 and 13, that the Bible says, hey Israel, you've got a problem and all of heaven should be appalled and shocked. Why? Because you, my people, have committed two evils. You've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And again, if you want to be specific theologically, the fountain of living water that he wants to give people is in the third person of the, of the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. And they have hewn out, dug out for themselves cisterns. They're broken cisterns. They can't hold water. You're looking for fulfillment. You're looking for something to give you life, to do something in you. And what you need is me, and if you want to talk about the thing I'm going to bring to the world in the church age, post-ministry of Christ, it's the indwelling spirit. Put a few implications down. It is, much like the analogy of breath in the body, wind, it is life-giving, water. You die without water. You need water just like you need oxygen. You need air. Here's another analogy of that life-giving, sustenance. You've got to have that to continue to live. It's the thing that brings you, according to Jeremiah 2, which is clearly the overtone in John 4, it brings fulfillment. It's the thing that you can't find in your job. It's the thing you can't find in parenting. It's the thing you can't find in your marriage. It's the thing you can't find in accomplishing thing or engaging in projects or artwork or, or hobbies or whatever else. The thing that God has made us for, as I preached at Easter, is himself. He's made us for him. And the only real satisfaction is going to be found when the Spirit lives in you. And if he doesn't live in you, if you don't have that kind of relationship that's described by the preposition in, not with, then there's something lacking. And then again, all the pass-through. Let's think of that. In you is going to spring up this well of living water. It's going to come forth from you. There's clearly overtones. We don't have time to prove throughout the Scripture, but let me make it clear. The ministry provision something in you that's going to work through you that's going to be a well springing up. It's as though you don't need to be connected to something else from you. You will be refreshment, life-giving, fulfillment in other people's lives as you bring the resource you have within you. Water. Spirit, it's like wind. Spirit, it's like water. Implications. Number three, let's talk about oil. 
If you say oil, I can't remember. The Bible is talking about the Spirit. Oil, maybe this will help. These words are connected with it throughout the Bible. Anoint and anointed. This is one of those, by the way. Though there's some mystery to this, as we'll see in 1 John. I want to try to clarify. We've made a lot out of this word that, frankly, people don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> because I ask them what you're talking about, and a lot of times they don't know what they're talking about. I say, well, what did you mean by that? You prayed something about anointing. Tell me what that means. I don't know. So we need to figure this out from a biblical perspective. Help you with the words. If you've been through this before in the Christology class, just count it a review. But in Old Testament Hebrew, there's a couple of words, the verb and the noun, as there is in English, as there is in Greek, right? Meshach, meshach is the word that is the noun that we translate anoint. If someone is anointed, if someone is anointed, we call them the meshach, the meshach. The meshach is the anointed one who has been anointed. In Greek, same thing. We have the verb, um, uh, creo, thank you, creo, and we have the, the noun. Creo means to anoint them, and Christos means you've been anointed. Starting to sound like, you know those words transliterated into English? Meshach, Messiah, Christos, Christ. Okay, in English, what does it mean? The word itself, the verb, just talking about the verb here, it means to pour or something poured on, if you were going to look as the recipient. Smear, <laughs> not, not a word I don't think we use very often. Uh, phrases come to mind from childhood, but okay, smear. Sprinkle. To sprinkle, to pour, to smear, to paint. That's the verb. The archaic way in English to translate it would be anoint, which unfortunately is not used in any other context these days, rarely, except for church. And when it's used in church, people don't often know what they're saying. Except in their minds, most people connect it to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of uses of the word in Hebrew and in Greek, mostly in Hebrew, that it's, well, we'll look at it. I think I spelled it out on the, on the overhead. I did. Two uses. There's the common use. And the common use has nothing to do with what people mean when they talk about it, um, you know, in, in church. They're not, they're not talking about the common use. For instance, in the Bible, you'll read of uh, someone painting a house in the prophets, no one uses the word anoint. What are you doing Saturday? Oh, I'm anointing the house. No one, talk, no one thinks that way. Gotta, I got to anoint the bathroom. I mean, I don't know what you would think if you heard someone say that, but it would mean to paint, right? Or apply a lotion or to apply some kind of fragrance, apply some kind of, of, of perfume or something. To put it on, to rub even, it's translated. To rub on oil on a shield, for instance, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah. To rub that oil on is to anoint. Okay. That's the common use, and nobody uses the word anoint for that, although you could. It's an old English word. The symbolic use, let's just get to the biblical phrase that would describe it all. It's to acknowledge something as special. And it's interesting, sometimes we talk about it makes something special. It really doesn't. It just acknowledges something is special. It gives for everyone to see the, the, the point of this is a special thing or a special person. They would anoint things sometimes in the Bible, just like we would say that the utensils in the tabernacle are holy. 
And then we talk about holy people and holy behavior, kind of similar thing as it comes to anointing. To anoint in the context of setting something aside as special, let's just stick with the idea of people because that's the focus when we think of the Holy Spirit. We see three groups of people in the Bible being anointed. Kings, you can think of the passage, I'm sure, in 1 Samuel where uh, Samuel goes out and he anoints the young shepherd boy named David. He takes the horn, that's by the way, you're thinking, is that oil? That's the flask that they would carry. Sometimes it's translated, I think, in the ESV, flask, but some kind of container, a vial, I think the old uh, King James used to translate it, a, a flask of oil, a container of oil, a vial of oil. The, the prophet would have that on a strap or something in his belt, and he, and he would take that, and he would pour the oil from that horn, that flask, over the head of a person. Sprinkle, pour, paint. I mean, the, the idea, though, is just taking that and pouring it. And as the psalmist says in his descriptive song about oil coming over the head and down the beard, it's, you can picture the pouring. It's weird, right? It's an odd thing to do. But that oil was special, and the idea was that we're setting apart that person and acknowledging that person as special because God had already acknowledged the person as special. Think about it. All those brothers came before Samuel, and he said, God, is that him? Is that him? Is that him? Not do you want me to make that guy king, but is that him? And then he would acknowledge the special nature of that person. And in that case, David, who had already been chosen in God's mind, because as he said, man looks at the outward appearance. That's why you didn't catch my king, but I'm looking at the heart, and that's the person I've prepared for this. Elijah, I'm sorry, let's go back to Moses. A Moses, he anoints Aaron with the oil. He's told by God to take the oil and anoint Aaron. And from there, we've got the priests anointing other priests with oil, setting them apart so that they could function in the temple. Couldn't function or in the tabernacle back then, in the tent before it became a building. You couldn't function there unless you had been anointed, which is just a, a ceremony. It's symbolic. Prophets. You see Elijah, for instance, who was told by God to go anoint kings because the prophets were the ones that did this unless you were a priest. Uh, and the priests then would, would anoint the priest. But the prophets would anoint the kings and the prophets would anoint the other prophets. He not only appoints Jehu, but he appoints or anoints, but he anoints um, Elisha uh, in, in uh, First Kings. The anointing. What are you doing? I'm pouring oil on this person's head. Why? So everyone can see publicly this is the one that God has already chosen to be prophet. God has chosen to be priest. God has chosen to be king. Now, when you call Jesus, Jesus Christ, you know that's not his last name, right? That means he is the one who has been anointed. That's the idea. And that is always a symbolic act, a symbolic act that shows that they are a special person. In Christ's case, which is he? Prophet, priest, or king? Help me with this. He's all of them, right? He's a prophet. Anyone can be chosen as a prophet if God had prepared him to be. He's a priest. That's a problem because you're supposed to be from the line of Levi. How did we get around that biblically? Because the idea in Hebrews was you don't have to be from the line of Levi to be a legitimate priest. What about Melchizedek back in Genesis? God said, here's a, here's a priest that I have authorized. He didn't come from the line of Levi. And so the point is made in Hebrews that Jesus is also the high priest, the great high priest who was anointed by God. And then, of course, the king, which he was from the right tribe to be the king. Judah, doesn't matter which for prophet, 
You have to be from Levi, so they say, to be a legitimate priest, but God proved in Hebrews that's not the case because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, that's very convenient. Well, it's not convenient at all because we read about the historical events in 2000 BC in the record that was written in 1450 BC, and then it was again prophesied in 1000 BC in David's psalm, in Psalm 110, that there would be one coming that would be priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And everybody scratched their heads for a thousand years saying, I don't get that. Christ comes on the scene as the fulfillment of that. We call him Christ. Christ, what does that mean? Anointed one. Jesus the anointed. That'd be another way to say it. Jesus, the one who's had oil poured on him. Now, is that really what happened? No, that isn't what really happened. Go to Luke chapter 4, which we studied not long ago, where the quote-unquote anointing uh, is about to, or has already taken place. We'll look at that in a minute. I want to turn you to four. I turn you to three for the act. Yeah, let's slow me down here. Luke chapter four. In Luke chapter four, Jesus makes some claims as he's preaching in Nazareth. Notice how Luke sets this up in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Okay, he goes up north. And the report about him went all throughout the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then he came to Nazareth, where he wasn't going to be so well received, where he'd been brought up, his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now he picked Isaiah 61, and he starts reading. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. So he looked through to find this text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has, underscore it now, creod. He had anointed me to proclaim the euangelion, the gospel, the good news, to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Poor, captive, blind, oppressed. Those were all, as we said when we studied this text, clearly, and I proved this in the sermon, these are, these are, are, are metaphorical. He's proclaiming the euangelion to the poor, which is not you're going to be rich, but that you can be saved. Liberty to the captives, not because everybody gets out of jail, but because they get their sins given, forgiven and they're redeemed. And to sight to the blind, not every blind person got healed that Jesus ministered to, but the sight to the blind was, as he says later in, in his ministry to the blind man in John 9, the sight of being able to see was symbolic, metaphorical of our sight to know our our God and our creator, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, the oppression of sin and all the rest, to proclaim the year of God's favor. He rolled up the scroll, he sat down, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amazing text. He reads it, says, I'm anointed. Now he makes the connection, not to oil. He makes the connection to what in verse 16? I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 18, the spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Think about that now. He could have said in me. Why didn't he say in me? Isn't that the whole big promise of the new covenant? No, upon me. Why? Because the next verb he's going to use is creo, anointed. See, you don't put paint in the walls. You put paint on the walls. That, that's the idea. The Spirit is on me because I have been anointed. And the picture is, the symbolic picture is, the oil, the symbolic picture, this metaphor, this emblem of the Spirit is the idea of the Holy Spirit 
clothing me, which is another emblem we're not going to have time to look at tonight. It is, it is all over me. It has been poured out on me. Now, again, these are all metaphors. These are all symbols. You get the idea. We're not talking about a literal pouring, although we're going to see the passage here in a second. Now, put this down, if you would, as, as just a cross-reference. I'll read it for you, but Acts chapter 10, verse 38. If you're studying this, you need to see that this is the way that it was viewed. He says in the preaching here in verse 37, Acts 10, he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, which is what we just are reading about, after the baptism of John that proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. So in the minds of the people, God had anointed this person. That's why he's called the Christ. He anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing people who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The picture is that when you claim to be the Christ, we need the anointing. The symbolism really doesn't matter. What really matters is the reality, and the reality we'll find here in chapter... Um, oh, before we get to that chapter, a couple sidebars. Interesting, because we're studying the Spirit not in relation to Christ, but in relation to us. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. I do want you to look at this real quick. The Spirit anointing Christ, which, as I've already said, is something that acknowledges someone as special, set apart, in his case, as prophet, priest, and king, is a word now that is utilized about us. And by the way, I think I put this down as a cross-reference. Yes, Acts 11.26, which is one of three examples in the Bible, that you are called, you do this all the time now, but it was unique in the Bible, you are called an anoint, a little anointed one. What's the word? Christian. Ever heard of that? Christian. You are the, the little anointed one. You say, well, I'm the follower of the anointed one, but that's the idea. To be called a Christian is to claim what this is saying in this text, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 and 22. And you're there, right? Read it with me. And don't read it with me. Follow along as I read it. Man, I'm back in the Lutheran church I grew up in. No, no, no. Which is nothing wrong with that. You can read the scripture, but it takes up too much time. And so does this conversation about it. <laughs> Verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Okay, God is doing the works like the, the wind. He chooses. It's sovereign. And has anointed us. Okay, think of this through now. And who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's the idea now. The spirit of God, if you have it, in this case, he's being specific with a new covenant promise, the spirit is in you, then you've been anointed as well. Now, you're not anointed as the Christ, but you are anointed as a Christian, if you will, who now has this setting apart of your life for, for God. You want the complete list, by the way. Acts 11.26, we're called Christians there for the first time in Antioch. 1 Peter 4.16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, Peter says later. That's 1 Peter 4.16. And then one other time, you might remember, it wasn't said as a good thing necessarily. It was when Agrippa was being convicted by Paul's preaching. He said, are you trying to persuade me? You think I'm going to become a Christian in a short time? And Paul said, yeah, I wish that you would. Uh, that is the three references of the word Christian in the New Testament in the Bible, and it has reference to the idea that we share in that. Now, um, 
We're going to look at the Luke 3 passage later. But that was the picture of the baptism and, and, and the coming of the Spirit. The passage I want to untangle as best we can in the short time that we have is 1 John 2.18. If you say, um, for instance, I'm going to pray for the anointing in your life. So you say, oh man, that's what the Pentecostals and Charismatics say. Here's the deal. I've been anointed. I'm a Christian. I have the Spirit in my life. The day I became a Christian, I was much like Christ, at least in the relationship to the Spirit, given the Spirit, and that was a change in my status before God. Now, there's one other passage that talks about anointing, and here it is, and it's, it's confusing to folks, so let's walk through this carefully. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, got to catch the context. He's talking about false teachers. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. The reality is there's going to be, according to Paul's teaching, the New Testament, here John says it, an Antichrist who's going to be the Antichrist, as the book of Revelation spells this out. I'm a futurist. I think I can prove that. But the idea is that he's coming. And then he says here, but you know what? The opposing teaching of Christ, it's out there already. It's everywhere. Many antichrists, false teachers have come. That's another way to read this. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. We're in the last season. The Bible says that's going to happen from the time of Christ's ascension till his return in that last period. They went out from us. Some people from our own midst, he says, who are now preaching against Christ in their subtle ways, their false doctrine. But they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. They're not really converted. They don't really have the Spirit. They're not really right with God. But you have been, now underline it, anointed by the Holy One. More on that in a minute. There's something interesting that the ESV translators did, which most translators don't, and I think it's unfair for us. They've turned the noun into a verb, and we'll talk about that. I mean, it is a noun, but it's in a verbal form. Verse 20, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is in the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now that's the antichrist teaching. That's the opposing Christ teaching. That's people with false doctrine about who Christ is, Jesus is. This is the antichrist who denies the father and the son, at least all the accurate things that God has said about himself and his son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. No one who confesses the Son, right? I'm sorry, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now, you should underline verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. We already talked about verse 20, the idea of something I've already got here. Keep reading, middle of verse 24. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that was made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. That's the whole point of this context. The whole discussion about anointing is about being prepared to not be deceived. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Okay, immediately because of the reference in 2 Corinthians, 
and the connection to Christ and his anointing, meaning the Spirit is upon him, we often say, well, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we are. A couple things to note, though. We're not talking about the act of anointing in this passage. We're not even talking about the word anointing being used as being the recipient. We're not talking about anointed ones. We're talking about the thing that is put on them, the anointing, okay? The, the problem with the ESV in verse number 20, which may not be a problem at all if their interpretation is right, but in 20 it says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. You see that? Now they're thinking, okay, the Holy One is the Father. The anointing is the Spirit. That's most people's thought on this text because it's just surface, well, that's what it means, okay? Literally what this reads, though, is you have an anointing, okay? In other words, we're talking about the reception of it, just like it says later that there has been a reception of something that God has given. Not that you have been anointed, but you have the anointing. You possess it. Echomai, you, you have it. You possess it from the Holy One. Could it be that the Holy One is the Spirit? Perhaps. Keep reading. Middle of verse 20. You all have knowledge. Now, there's a connection, obviously, and everyone would admit it between the knowledge and whatever the reception of the anointing is that they have. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because there's no lie in the truth. Verse 22. Whatever the anointing is, it reveals truth to us. Verse 22. Who is the liar but the one that denies that Jesus is the Christ? It's the Antichrist, denies the Father. No one denies. Verse 23. The Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Whatever this anointing is, it's this thing that enables me to figure out what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's error. Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now, we're already talking about the anointing abiding you, abiding in you. Verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. Now, what he says in verse 24 is what you've heard from the beginning. Let that abide in you. Just again, pop your eyes from verse 24 to verse 27 to verse 24 to verse 27. The anointing is something in me, and it's something that I've heard, something I've been taught. So let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you'll be able to abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you've received from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. I mean, that's the idea, this anointing that abides in us, apparently, verse 27, teaches us. Okay, well, what is this? Well, our clues is that this is something from God revealing truth to us that enables us to judge error, and it's something we hear. It's something that teaches. Okay, the, the minority view on this, which I think is attractive, is that the anointing in this passage, and there are people that are, you know, not just Mike Fabar is out on a limb here, although it's the minority view, is the body of truth that is taught to the church, which is not the Spirit himself, but the book that the Spirit wrote. And though there's a double overlap, if you will, of what we see usually being referred to in Scripture, symbolically, as the Spirit being put on us or in us, in this text, it's the thing that we hear. And the hearing is the body of truth that was taught and that John's trying to write some more to have them get this in them so that they can judge what the subjective Gnostics and the other false teachers say against the absolute propositional truth that they've been taught. The anointing here. In other words, all I'm saying is that in 1 John chapter 2, perhaps what we're dealing with 
is not the Spirit himself, although it's hard to separate sometimes the Spirit from the book that he wrote, as we'll see in the, in the week that we deal with that. If it is the Spirit, it's the Spirit calling them back to the teaching they heard through the apostles that allows them to judge. It cannot be subjective because it's the teaching that they have to objectively measure by something that does not change. If it is the Spirit and the Spirit teaching them, it's something that cannot ever be subjectively morphed or changed or twisted or contorted, the teaching. Most people I understand say, well, it's the indwelling Holy Spirit. If it is, it's the Spirit's conviction whenever our thinking deviates from the teaching that they received, in our case, that John's writing and the other apostles thankfully have left for us as God planned in writing. All right. Yeah. You didn't buy that, many of you, but that's all right. Look it up. What are we on now? Number four. Let's talk about the seal. It's been a long time since I've taught on 1 John 2, but it needs about an hour to untangle. Not that, it, not that it's the, the right view necessarily, but there are enough clues. There's the grammar. There's the... the, the, the uh, genders of not just the verbs, but there's a lot going on in the passage. Can of worms crawling around the pulpit. Second Corinthians chapter 1, the seal. This, by the way, is not an ocean animal, right? Uh, this is this kind of seal, right? Now, all the time frames are not right. I have a seal that's too old on the back graphic on the background, and I have a seal here that makes the seal that it's, uh, you know, this is too young and that's too old. Doesn't matter. Google can't always provide the perfect images for me. What's the point? The seal is something. This is the thing that does the sealing, and that's the seal that it leaves behind. It's an impression, which is some kind of impression that leaves some kind of, of, of communication. We'll look at this from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 22. No, that's not right. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. 2 Corinthians 1.22. Weren't we just there? Interactive church? Yes. yes, we were. Let's get more of the context, though, because this is helpful as to why this doctrinal emphasis on the Spirit comes up the way that it does. Start in verse 17. By the way, if you want to read 2 Corinthians 1 the way we ought to, you need to remember 1 Corinthians 16 where he makes plans and the plans are changed, which is what he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 1. And he's trying to say, you know what, I planned on it, I was resolved to do it, I, I was committed to doing it, and then God vetoed my plan. Now verse 17 asks the rhetorical question, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my, my plans according to the flesh, the flaky people of the world who say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? You know, they cross their fingers behind their back. They say, I'll be there. They don't really mean it. No. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. I'm not equivocating. I'm not vacillating. For the Son of God, now he's going to shift in this discussion. Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but it is always yes. Okay, so we're resolved. For all, now we're going further. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now we're going from my promise to visit you, and now I got waylaid, I couldn't come, I didn't vacillate, my intentions were pure, I'm not like people that say they're going to be somewhere and they don't show up. This was God vetoing my plan sovereignly, but let's talk about God's promises. They are always yes. He always carries them through. That's why 
It is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory when we teach you things about his promise and promises. That's plural in verse 20. Verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Is it maybe? Is it yes and no? Is it maybe I'll have you, I won't have you, I maybe will save you, I won't save you? No, he's anointed us. And he has, verse 22, put his, here's the word, seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, his seal on us, okay? This is the idea of an official seal that has been placed on us. The context in which this comes up is, at least in this letter, is that people vacillate, make promises, and don't keep them. God, though, has made a promise about us being in him, and he's put his authorized stamp on it. It's been sealed. A couple of cross-references, I'll read them for you, but you might want to jot them down. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, of your salvation, and you trusted in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Or maybe a more familiar passage to you, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here's the picture of the authorized stamp being put on your life by the presence of the Spirit that should be obvious because in you, like wind in the sail of a ship, it drives you to keep his, his, his word. And the point is, when you see the evidence of the Spirit in your life, that's the seal of God guaranteeing your redemption. A couple things involved in this by way of implication. Certainly ownership. Ownership. Think of those Old Testament prophets talking about the inscribed name of God on the people's palms and on their head. And I, I think of even in the book of Revelation, the name of God being on their forehead, the letters and promises to the churches. Us being, it's like Toy Story, right? When they, the old one, they, I've only seen the old one. Uh, whichever little uh, animated thing, Woody, thank you, uh, has the name of the boy. I don't remember that either. I saw it once. What is his name? Andy, Andy inscribed on his foot. Was it his foot? I should really know more about the illustration than you when I start to, to say it. But wasn't there a scene in there that, about that, right? It's vague in my mind. That picture of ownership. And remember even that, I'm sure in the touching, you know, Pixar, you know, studios and planning this all out, the idea of that, that touching moment of that, he's mine, right? Or in his case, he was the owned, and he's like, I'm owned by him. That's the picture. And in that, there's security, Right? That's the idea. Security. And you weren't sealed just by, you know, I don't know, somebody else saying, no, you belong to him. You're sealed by the authority, the one who has the right to say it. That's what a seal was all about. In the ancient world, the normal person didn't have a seal. The magistrates had the seals. The kings had the seals. The royal officials had the seals. People that were doing contracts that were big and important had seals. It was protection. You are his. You are sealed to the day of redemption. And because of that, it's the thing that should be bringing security, affirmation to our hearts. Why? Because you got the Spirit. How do you know you have the Spirit? Because you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You see him giving you life. God has, it's like God has come alive, but you've come alive. Your relationship with God has come alive. The work of his spirit in your life has changed who you are. Number five. Let's talk about the dove. The dove. 
This may be interesting to note. Um, there's only one reference to this in quadraphonic sound. <laughs> one scene which connects the spirit to an image of a dove, and I didn't, shouldn't even say it right, who relates the idea of a dove and the spirit. Let's get all four of them up on the screen. These are tiny, but can you see them? Matthew 3, 16. He saw the Spirit of God descending, here it is now, like a dove. We got the participle and we've got a descriptive. It's descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Here's Mark's uh, verbiage. Mark 1.10, and he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. No material difference there. John, I got Matthew, Mark, and John so far. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. Now, like a dove describes what in all three of those passages? What? Descending, right? Descending like a, like a piano, you know, falling from a second story. Descending like a cannonball. Descending like a feather. Descending like a dove. It's describing the way that this spirit is descending. It's describing the descent. How does a dove descend? You've seen this. We don't have to be farmers to know this one, right? They just gently touch down. They come down and they, they, they land without crashing. Okay. Luke. We made a little sidebar on this when we, when we taught on it in, in Luke 3. Look at how Luke describes this. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form comma, right, for the sake of our grammar, like a dove. Now, here's the problem. Speak of dispelling some myths. Though people will say, even commentators, some of them will say, hey, you know what? What they saw, because this is all about what they saw. They saw the Spirit, they saw the Spirit, they saw the Spirit. They saw a dove coming down and landing on Christ in this picture of his anointing. Why did we have to have a visual? Well, why did you have to have visual oil poured on the head of David? So that other people could see it. We saw something coming down when he was being baptized and it rested on him and remained on him in this scene while he was being baptized. What did they see? Now, half the commentators, and by commentators, I mean good commentators, Half the conference is going to say, it seems clear from Luke 3.22 that they didn't see the image of a dove. They saw something that seemed like it was coming down as a body, in bodily form, like a person, a person's body, right? Not, not the structure of a dove. It came down, not like a corpse falling off of, the, of a high mountain or a cliff. It came down like a dove would come down. The image of the spirit equated to a dove is a sketchy thing to affirm, right? I don't know if that's exactly what happened. I would contend that's not what happened, that you saw something come down and rest on him that may have been, and I'm in good company with this affirmation, look like a person coming down and resting on a person, as weird as that may sound. But it came down, not like something falling like a ton of bricks on him. It came down and settled, describing now the grammar of this passage. It descended like a dove. Either way, if 
you want to make a big deal out of the spirit being equated with a dove, it's all you got. You got four passages that all talk about one event, and they're, they're practically identical in Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke, though, adds in bodily form. Are you tracking with that? All I'm saying is people made a big deal out of spirit being like a dove, and the Bible doesn't. Every single emblem I could come up with almost has a repetitive focus appearing and coming up again in another aspect. Not the dove. Dove has no, I mean, there's no reference to this beyond this passage. Is there, are there doves in the Bible? Yeah. Solomon calling his wife a dove. Uh, a dove being sent out from the ark. You, you can stretch your imagination, I suppose, but it's hard to find in any of the reference to dove or doves in the Bible any connection to the Holy Spirit. Not like the rest of what we've covered so far. Water and wind and all the rest. I don't know. I just say that because the dove seems to be a pretty popular symbol of the Holy Spirit these days. In these parts. Around here. <laughs> Alright. This is where I wanted to briefly look at Luke and what's going on. And don't write, I mean, write these down, but you don't need to turn to all. Well, you might want to turn to these. Whatever. Your choice. Free country. In Luke... I've already painted the picture of the baptism, and in chapter 4, he's claiming the Spirit of God is upon me. Right? I've been anointed, just like Isaiah 61 says. I am the Christ, prophet, priest, and king. All that implication there. Okay? This comes after chapter 3, where he is baptized. Okay? I start in Luke 1.35 to make the point, as I did when I preached through this, that Jesus, I don't believe was like we are in the New Testament when we see our lives come alive to God. We need the Spirit of God to quicken us and make us alive to God. That's not what Jesus needed. In Luke 1, the first reference we have to the pre-born you know, Christ is that he's conceived by the work of the Spirit in the womb of Mary. I'm saying he's got a close relationship there with the Holy Spirit. In Luke 2, 47 through 49, he's in the temple as a 12-year-old, calling God his Father in perfect fellowship with this Father. Everyone amazed at the wisdom, as we saw in Isaiah last time, the spirit of wisdom, you could say, on him. There's nothing that suggests that he's devoid of the spirit. Luke 1, 15, his lesser counterpart, who's not, who's not worthy to untie the strap of Christ's sandal, was filled with the Spirit from birth, which is a unique thing. You weren't, I wasn't, but the, John the Baptist was as the best and most important prophet that the Bible ever had, according to Jesus. Now think about that. If John, the lesser of Christ, is filled with the Spirit from birth, Christ was made by the Spirit as a special act of creation, Jesus was in perfect fellowship with the Father, having all the wisdom in, in chapter 2. I'm thinking, why do we need him to have the Spirit come down upon him? All of that is to make the claim for people to see that he is the prophet, priest, and king. The idea of the dove coming down, or see, I've just said it the way every people, everybody understands it. And perhaps that's right. Maybe it was. We'll find out. Whatever came down and settled on him, not like a ball bouncing off his head, but coming down like, you know, floating down. I mean, there was no helicopter to compare this to. So it came down like a dove. 
That was visualized for the people to see it. And that's the only reference to it at all. What's my point? This was a special, miraculous manifestation for the crowds to say, we saw something identified as the Spirit, whatever that was, where there's no reference about dove in the Old Testament to Spirit. And it settled on him, and that is the thing he's pointing back to as he preaches in the synagogues, that he is the Christ. This is, in my mind, all just to point to something like David could point to the flask or horn of oil being poured on his head. David didn't come out of there saying, I'm the king. He could point to say, you know I'm the king. Look, I just got anointed, which of course he didn't say. If you're tracking with me on that, I'm just saying dove, the only, the only significance to the idea of dove is just the idea of how the spirit manifested itself in a special case to show these people that he was the Christ. Other than that, there's no implication I can draw because there is none to have. Let's talk about fire. Fire. Two, two, two references that I think are worth looking at, as long as we're in Luke, which, by the way, is the gospel that we are studying, and it does talk about the Holy Spirit more than any of the other gospels. So Luke's Sunday study goes hand-in-hand hand with Thursday night studies. A lot of references to the Spirit in Luke. Luke 3, 16 through 18. John is preaching. Just about to get to the baptismal scene there. He answers them saying, I'll bapt I baptize you, present tense, with water. That's what I'm doing. Continuative tense in Greek. I'm doing it now. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay? Right there, some people in some theologies or pneumatology textbooks say, well, there it is. The Spirit is fire. Okay, that's not what this text says, and I don't think it has to do with two things being done to one person or one group of people. I think we're talking about group A, Spirit, group B, fire. Why? Verse 17. The winnowing fork, that's the separating tool, is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. Guess what they get? The spirit, they're made alive to God. But the chaff will be, here's our, here's our theme now, burnt with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Get right with God. You have to be saved. You need to be forgiven. You need the spirit in you. Christ now is going to be your savior if you trust in him, or as Revelation says, if you want to be very specific, chapter 19, he'll come back and judge you with fire. That's even how the book started, by the way. The idea there in Revelation chapter 1 is he has eyes that are burning fire, and his face is burning like the sun, which is nothing other than a ball of fire, and he comes to bring judgment on the earth and then to wage war with people in Revelation 19 and bring judgment on people. Who? Who? The, the lost. The saved are sanctified, set apart, sealed by the Spirit, and the others get fire. So you're either going to be judged or saved. Therefore, I'm saying the fire of Luke 3, 16 through 18 is not the fire of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Great. Acts 2. You can make the connection, but I don't think you can prove it from the text there. Though some people obviously understand that to be the Holy Spirit is fire. The fire of Acts 2, 1 through 4. 
Oh, by the way, I should have put this as a reference on the other one. If you've got a hand that's available, uh, Luke 12, 49 and 50, you should put next to the fire of Luke 3, 16 through 18. Just as further proof that the baptism is either spirit or fire, not spirit and fire. You don't get them both to the same person. He's going to baptize you with spirit and fire. Not the same group. Some of you with spirit, some of you with fire. Because there are people there he called a brood of vipers that are lost and who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. So Christ is going to bring that. In chapter 12, verse 49, he says, I'm going, I came to cast fire on the earth. And I wish that it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. That was his death. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. Again, he's coming to bring fire. Not to his people. And I know people say, well, the fire is like the purification in your soul. It's not what this, I don't think that's what the passage is teaching. I don't think that's what Luke is teaching. It's not in Luke's theology to use that to talk about the Spirit. Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 verse 1. The day of Pentecost had arrived. They were gathered in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. There's our view from the first point. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. We talk about in the Bible and in even our English idioms being licked up by fire. Are you catching the, the connection there? Tongue, licked up, fire. Whatever this is, you're trying to envision it, and the church has through the years painted a few pictures of this scene, and it always looks a little bizarre. They picture something like I put on my screen, some kind of fire coming down, and it says here, it's dividing up as tongues of fire, licking people, but then resting on them. It comes and each one gets a, 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 a portion of this fireball. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, other tongues. Here's a little play on words, if you will. The licking, if you will, the, the portions of the fire, just like that fire. And I just pulled a graphic of fire. It's got all these tentacles, if you will. Those tentacles all reached down and settled on each of these disciples. And now they began to speak in other languages. The word glossa is the word for language, but it comes from the word tongue. Right? That's the idea. It's translated tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Whatever's happening here in the upper room, they are having that em empowerment of the coming Spirit that looks a lot like, if you will, I'll suggest to you, the coming of the Spirit when Jesus was baptized. Do you, did you see anything when you became a Christian? Right? No. We, we, we don't see it. It's invisible. Wind. It's mysterious. It comes and goes. You don't know where it's coming. What's the point here, though? To symbolize for all those that were there and all those that saw it, there had to be some manifestation, or at least God decided there to be a manifestation, of the coming down of the Spirit to fulfill the new covenant promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the evidence of, of that was their ability to speak another language as the Spirit gave them utterance to do so, which is not ecstatic utterance. These are intelligible comments, as the passage goes on to say. But the point is, this is a way to describe what they saw. In the case of, follow me here now, Luke chapter 3, they describe this, or Luke does, as bodily form and coming down like a dove, which is not like a ton of bricks. In this passage, they see spirit coming down. It's blobbish, if you will, like fire, and it rests, sounds like the dove, on the heads of these people, and it's only employed 
to bring us a sense of what it looked like. Okay? A lot of the emblems of the Holy Spirit tell us about something that the Spirit does. That's not what's happening. In my estimation, as a teacher of the Bible, it's not what's going on with the emblem of tongue, or the emblem, or fire rather, tongues of fire, and the emblem of dove. Those are not descriptives of any implication as to what I can throw up on the screen and say, look what we get from the fact that the Spirit is fire. Now, do creative, imaginative people come up with things? Well, yeah, purification, I don't know, revving the engines of fire, in my, stoking the fire. I don't know. I don't know where you get that from. You don't get it from the Bible. You get it from implication in your own thinking. The Bible speaks of fire generally as judgment as the, the, the Joshua, the high priest, being plucked in Zechariah from the fire. Save them, pl pluck them from the fire. Jude says the same thing. Fire is the element of judgment. Why does he use fire here? Because that's what it looked like. Why did he use dove? Because that's what it looked like. It's a description of how the spirit descended, and in this case, what it looked like. Now, is fire and God connected? Yeah. Usually, though, again, in judgment. Our God, Hebrews 10, is a consuming fire. Don't you want that in your life? Is that the next verse? What is the next? No. He's a consuming fire. We need to fear. Worship him in reverence and awe. The idea of fire. There is fire, I know, in the temple, on the altar. There's a pillar of fire in the wilderness. I know there's lots of references to fire and a connection to God, but the issue usually doesn't have the connection to the Spirit's empowerment, the Spirit's moving, the Spirit's prompting. I, I can't find the connection. I know other people have and other people do, even in Revelation, even in Daniel 7, where the throne has wheels of fire, and as the fire itself is emanating from the throne. These are pictures of judgment and authority. Could you make the tie? Yeah, I can't point to a passage that makes the tie, though. So... I'm looking at emblems. Some of them I'm putting yellow subpoints up saying, look at what we derive from that. That's so helpful. Here I'm saying, this is what it looked like. This is what it looked like. Got it? You see what I'm doing here tonight? Seven, guarantee. Good. Guarantee. Now that's the ESV translation of 2 Corinthians 1.22. Now we've looked at that a few times already. Let me just read it for you. He has put a seal on us. There's one word. And he's given us his spirit the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, okay? Now, the King James Version that some of you grew up with used the word earnest, right? As in earnest money, right? Earnest money. What's earnest money? Money that proves that I'm going to pay for the rest of it, right? Here's how the NIV translates this Greek word, a deposit. He's given us his spirit, his spirit as a deposit. What's a deposit? Well, it's a down payment, it's showing that I want that item, I want that thing, here's my down payment for it, it's a deposit. I'm gonna come back and get it, and that'll prove that it's mine, because I put money down on it. The New American Standard translate this, translates this Greek word pledge, which you can see the idea in the word earnest and deposit, and that's kind of like the, you know, the promissory note. The promissory note, which usually comes with some kind of deposit check, says, I'm signing this, and it's mine, and I'm going to carry through with it, and I'm going to pay for it, and it's, it's, I own it. Now, the ESV, like a lot of translations that choose to translate this guarantee, gives us the idea. It just doesn't give us the emblem very well. It doesn't give us the illustration very well. To say he gave us his spirit as a guarantee in our hearts 
I get that that's what it means, but the picture's a bit lost. That's why I put money on your, on your, on your worksheet to show you that picture. When you think of the Spirit, now this is not to describe what it looks like. This is to describe what He does, what this represents. When He's in your life, the Bible's pretty clear, as Romans 8 would drive this home, that you and I have the Spirit in our hearts as, here's the word in Romans 8, the first fruits of what? Of our, of our redemption. Actually, we're longing for our redemption like the world is groaning for the redemption. And I can't wait to have it happen, the redemption of our bodies. That's the future finishing of our salvation. As a matter of fact, when I say finishing of our salvation, it's like it hadn't even hardly started. Oh, as, is there implications of our, of our salvation being present? Yes, but our salvation is really future. If we are on planet Earth, again, illustration, and the Earth is sinking, we're on the ship of Earth, and the ship is going to sink, like the Costa, what is that thing they just righted? Concordia, Costa Concordia. Those were amazing pictures last week. The idea of a sinking ship in which people die. If I say planet Earth is on a crash course with the judgment of God, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. I know he's loving and all that, and everybody says, oh, he's all... great. He's real mad in the book of Revelation, and he's coming back to judge the world. Now, if I say, I'm saved, that's an amazing thing to say. Why? Because the destruction hasn't come yet. You're on a ship. You're on the Costa Concordia. And, and it's, you know, two days before it sinks, and you say, hey, I'm saved. Saved from what? Saved from the sinking Costa Concordia. Wow. You sure are confident, right? That's the point of the guarantee, of the earnest, of the deposit. The idea is that you are so sure that when the planet is incinerated by God's judgment, you're saved. You even say you're saved in the past tense. I'm saved. Saved? The, the testing of this whole thing has not even happened yet. How do we know you're saved? Look at your life. You have evidence of the Spirit. You have the fruit of the Spirit. That's the guarantee, the deposit, the assurance, the earnest, the promissory note from God that you are going to be saved. You understand that's how it works. Salvation is future, at least the reality of it. Right now, that's why people can sit around and scoff and mock us. Oh, you guys are saved, that's crazy. There's nothing wrong, everything's fine. Second Peter 3, it's all continued on. There's no judgment coming. And we say there is judgment coming, but I'm saved from that coming judgment. Here's how Romans 8, by the way, I was quoting verse 23, but here's how it ends. Those he foreknew, verse 29 and 30, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If he predestined them, he called them. If he called them, he justified them. If he justified them, he glorified them. How can you be so sure that if you have been called and that you have this experience with God now that you're going to be saved and justified and glorified one day? Because the Spirit, he is that first fruits of that whole salvation process. He is, as Paul put it, 2 Corinthians 1.22, the deposit, the down payment. What does that do for us? I hope it gives you security. Much like the seal, only this has a view, not just to your own by God, you're his, but you know, because you're his, when this ship goes down, you're not going down with it. That's security, that's confidence. That's what we call in the Christian life, assurance. People say, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Look for the evidence of the spirit in your life. And we'll talk about that a lot in this series. If it's there, then we know the first fruits of the spirit the down payment, the deposit, we know God's going to save you when, the, when it's over. And I just got to use the word from Romans 8, though it's misused today. If you think it's crossed your fingers hope, it's not crossed your fingers hope. It's hope, biblical hope, which is confidence that I will be saved. 
That's why Christians die differently than non-Christians. And ask people that work in hospice in our church or at the hospital, you know, I'm at the bedside of dying people, you know, periodically in my job, a, a lot more than most people are. And, and I, I see people die and they die differently. Christians die because they have confidence that they're saved and right with their maker. And the difference is they have the guarantee of God's redemption. Real quick now with the last bit of time we have. I want to move through just a few titles. Those are emblems. There are more. Those are the ones I thought would be helpful for us to discuss. Real quickly, though, let's close with these. Spirit of truth. John chapter 14, I'll just read it for you. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. In verse 17 specifically, it uses that. It says, if you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give another, a helper. He's going to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, that's what he's called. The world can't receive it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. What's he called? Spirit of truth. See, the difference between people that have the truth and don't have, or have the spirit and don't have the spirit is their relationship with the truth. What's the truth? The correspondence with reality. And God has spoken and he has told us about reality, invisible realities, future realities, realities we couldn't know unless he revealed it. And my my, or the, the relationship that the Spirit has in my life is all about this, truth. The correspondence with reality. He's always going to promote what's true and truth. Uh, the idea of the corpus of truth in the book that he wrote. A lot more on that later. Spirit of holiness, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. The Spirit of truth and the Spirit of holiness. Here's how it's put in Romans chapter 1. Talks about Paul. He's called, according to the Scriptures, the Son. He's descendant of David. He's declared to be the Son of God, verse 4 in power according to the spirit of holiness. Just love the way that's put. You want to talk about the spirit's work in your life, there are two things you should see. A correspondence in your life to the truth and an increasing holiness in your life. That's why people who are so fanatical about the spirit and they claim to have all these things happening in their life that are based on the spirit, I'm thinking if the spirit is that active in your life, where's your correspondence in your brain, your thinking and your words to the truth, and where's your increasing holiness? Don't claim to have the spirit active in your life without increasing connection with truth and holiness. He's always gonna promote holiness in the people that he dwells in, the people in which he dwells. Number 10, spirit of power. 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7. There are three here. With these, we'll close. And it says, and you might want to look at this one because I've got to prove this to you because the ESV, like, most trans, like many translations, put this in a small s, and I want to prove to you or at least suggest to you that this is, in fact, a capital S or should be, at least in my opinion. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. I've got to look at some context to drive this home. Verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God. People say, well, there's the, there's the fire. Okay, if you really want to look at the gift of God in this context, you've got to look at chapter 4, verse 14, which is the gift he received in the context of this pastoral epistle. It's his pastoral role in the church. In other words, the people laid hands on you, as he goes on to say, which you got through the laying on of hands. You don't get the spirit through the laying on of hands. In the church, which he talks about, which was done by the other pastors, he became a pastor by the other pastors laying hands on him in a ceremony and saying, you're now the pastor. Which was much like the anointing ceremony of the Old Testament. It was an external, visual, symbolic meeting where Timothy then was, was installed, as they say, in the office of pastor. Now, be good at it. 
What was his problem? Timidity, as Paul points out. And now he says, listen, you should be doing your job. You should be just rip-roaring in this job. Why? Because God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Now, that has a small s. But I would suggest in context, look down at verses 13 and 14, that perhaps this should be a capital S. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. Be the pastor like I was the pastor, Timothy. Timothy was Paul's understudy. Do it in the faith and in the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I think the good deposit entrusted to him is the office that 414 talks about, that this passage calls the gift of God that's in him. You got that deposit to be the pastor. Now he says, do it and do a good job. Guard it by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. I think the Spirit in verse 6 and 7 is the idea of the Holy Spirit being described there. I think the context proves that. So let's take, take these quickly one at a time. Spirit of power. Problem with Timothy was his timidity. Now, one of my favorite passages I quote it all the time, but Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when there's no one pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. If the Spirit of God is in you, you should see increasing boldness. Did Timothy have a, a growth curve that needed to be accelerated? Yes. But he says the Spirit's in you. Live like it. Let your courage outweigh your fear of what people will think. Are you being identified with me or Christ? Speak up for the truth. If the Spirit of God, just look at those three things, is in you, and you're always talking about the Spirit of God or your friend is, you should see truth, holiness, and power or courage. Number, number 11, the next thing he says there is the Spirit of love. He gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, right? That's the same passage, and self-control. Love, by the way, is something that is so obvious in the evidence of the Spirit that it's listed first in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is, first thing on the list, love. Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Oh, and there's a second. It's important too. Love your neighbors yourself. John puts it this way in 1 John. This is 1 John 3, 23 and 24. This is the commandment. We believe in his name, the Son of God, and that we love one another just as he commanded. Now, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us, that his spirit, by the spirit whom he's given us. The spirit is connected with love. If you have the spirit, you're going to learn to love. If you're not very good at loving, what's going on with your relationship with the Holy Spirit? This power, the spirit of power, don't be timid, spirit of love. Who wasn't he loving? He wasn't loving God enough to care more about his reputation than people's reputation. He wasn't loving Paul enough to stand with Paul, a prisoner of Christ. He was caring more about his reputation. Love, selfless, giving, sacrificial. Lastly, number 12, with no time left. Um, computers having a problem. Self-control, obviously. It's the last one, right? Not a spirit of fear but a spirit of power, love, self-control. By the way, Galatians starts with, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and the last thing on the list, self-control. I find a lot of people that claim a really great relationship with the Holy Spirit, a lot better than mine, they claim, but they have no self-control. Right? Uh, problem. The Spirit, if He's active in your life, is producing increasing self-control. These things come automatically? No. But they come and they happen. It's the reality in the presence of the Spirit. We'll look a lot more at that in the weeks to come. Let's pray. God, thanks for this group. Thanks for this crowd. Give us a real sense of progress, not only in our understanding of your, your Spirit, but give us an increasing sense of progress in how we interact 
with the Spirit, allowing Him, as the Bible says, to have His way to fill, direct, influence, guide us in a lot of these practical things that we've talked about tonight. God, thanks for this study. I pray it would resonate all through the night tonight and tomorrow at work and whatever we're going to do, let it continue to enrich us, just the residual thoughts and cogitation and meditation on these things in Jesus' name. Amen.